0: a counterculture physician, embarks on a spiritual mission to help eradicate one of the planet's deadliest diseases. Welcome to Reach MD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined today by Dr. Larry Brilliant, author of Sometimes Brilliant. Dr. Brilliant, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Dr. Russell. Thank you, John.
0: So, Larry, what was your background growing up? An immigrant background. My dad was
1: an immigrant from what was then Russia, but is now Belarus. As he would joke, he said he was from a little village halfway between Minsk and Pinsk. (laughs) (laughs) And his father, my grandfather, who we think his name was Brilliantov, we're not sure, but we think the of got chopped off at Ellis Island. He was a bricklayer. And we think that he became a kind of stonemason. And in that way that villagers give themselves better names, a Mm -hmm. stonemason became somebody who worked with the most precious stone, and so he called himself a diamond mason, which in Russian is brilliant. Hmm. We think that's the origin of the name. My mother's father was a tailor, so I'm a first-generation American and the first in my family to graduate high school, and I'm the product of public schools, and I'm proud of all of that, and I I hope that people who are themselves first-generation immigrants going to public schools, you know, feel proud of that.
0: I'm a public school kid as well. I'm a few more generations, not too too many more generations. So how did you end up in medicine?
1: Well, I was going to go into law. I was at the University of Michigan. I only got into the University of Michigan because there was a math contest at my school, and I, I almost didn't even sit for the test, but I did. And by really, I think good luck. I really do think good luck. I won the state actuarial test or came in fourth in it, but enough to get a full scholarship to Ann Arbor to Michigan, which was expensive for us growing up in that community. And um, I was admitted into an honors program in atomic physics because I was good at numbers. And about halfway through that time, two things happened. One is that, I guess, three things. First, I I realized that we, we didn't even yet have the term nuclear physics. So it was obvious that if I did anything in atomic physics, it might be to help make bombs. Mm-hmm. That didn't feel right. <laughs> and the second thing that happened is my dad got cancer and was dying and I was a sophomore into my junior year. And I was very depressed about my major and about my dad and had sort of locked myself into my dorm room and was eating candy and reading comic books and a pretty sophomoric, classic sophomore depression. And I saw a little note that Martin Luther King was going to be speaking on campus, and he wasn't famous yet. Mississippi summer, he hadn't won his Nobel Prize. But there was something, I don't know, something drove me, I I think now in retrospect, I would say, to go see him speak. And, And I know where you are right now, there's a snowstorm, so you can probably appreciate that Ann Arbor, under certain atmospheric conditions, becomes almost impassable, but nonetheless, I got out of my depressed room, and I went to see Martin Luther King speak through terrible weather. And uh, this huge auditorium that seated 3,000 people only had a couple of hundred students come. And Martin Luther King looked out at us, at the students, and laughed that there were so few. He wasn't mad or upset or nobody had his vanity. And he said, you all come on up, come on up on stage. And about half of us were too timid to come up on stage. I was one of those mostly. And the other half went on stage and we surrounded him. And we either leaned or sat on the stage. I I eventually got up there. Instead of talking for an hour, he spoke for almost five or six hours. Wow. And it was transformative. Nobody had ever said to me that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. The world will be better than it is today. This was the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the riots in Detroit and Watts. This was the, the middle of the war in Vietnam and civil rights. He's The arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And then he said, But it won't bend towards justice unless you get off of your butts and get out of your chairs and you leap up and you grab that arc and you pull it and you twist it and you drag it down towards justice. And so he was saying two things. He was saying, First, the world will get better. You know, this is God's will that the world will get better, but it won't get better unless you do something. There is a job for you. Nobody ever said that to me. I never heard that the world was going to get better. I didn't even know that it was going to change. And I certainly didn't know that there was something I could do. I mean, don't we all want to hear that? Aren't those the two messages that we all want to hear? The world's going to get better and there's something I can do. That's, I think that became sort of what I've always wanted to hear. And so we all went down to Mississippi or Selma, Alabama and marched and almost everybody that was on the stage that day in Ann Arbor became part of an alphabet soup of organizations, NAACP, SNCC, CORE, SDS, all these 60s kind of civil rights organizations. And while I was doing that, because you asked how I got into medical school, I decided that I would shift my major to philosophy and I was gonna go to law school and be a litigator. Then my dad did die and a week after he died my grandfather who lived with us died so my mother lost her father and her husband and she said to me you're trying to be a a good person and and march for justice what about your mom you're going to go to boston and be a law student i want you to stay in detroit so how could i how could i not and i went around trying to get into law school at the last minute and i couldn't get into any law school and just by good luck again I wound up at Wayne Medical School in Detroit, Michigan, and they accepted me even though I only made my application in August of that year and they had an opening. So I went to medical school unprepared. I hadn't been a pre-med student, but it was a great experience for me.
0: So your activism continued through medical school and into residency, correct?
1: It did. I joined a group, another one of these acronyms, MCHR, the Medical Committee for Human Rights. And we would put on our white coats and ostensibly dangle our stethoscopes. <laughs> and we marched with Martin Luther King everywhere, forming a phalanx to protect him from being beaten up by um, people who didn't like his message. And we were all detained once in Chicago three, four, five hundred of us and arrested maybe, but never booked. You know, none of us were ever in handcuffs. My dear friend, Wavy Gravy, who's a clown, says if you're ever going to be arrested for a good cause, always be arrested with two or three hundred of your best friends (laughs) because then they put you in pretend jail. So we were put in pretend jail and it meant Martin Luther King could sing, which is amazing grace. Listening to Martin Luther King sing Amazing Grace with everybody joining him was like, one of the highlights of my life. And we also had other people there who were musicians and we were detained by the police, but it was much more of a party than it was a prison. But I was very active in things that were tougher than that, as all of us were during the 60s. And when I was an intern, in a place called Presbyterian Hospital in San Francisco. It's now called Pacific Medical Center. A group of Native Americans, as part of the 60s idea of protest, reclaimed Alcatraz Island, which had been declared surplus property, and they wanted to create an Indian-owned, Native American-held community on that island. But the Coast Guard was ordered to put a ring of embargo around that island and forbid any ship from coming to bring any supplies. So they had no medical supplies, no water, they had no food, and the government was going to starve them out. And then a woman, Lou Trudell, decided that she wanted to give birth to her baby on Indian held land. It was kind of a mystical, very important thing to do for her. And the local newspapers were writing articles every day, is there no doctor willing to go out there and help her? And one famous columnist, Herb Kane, began every day saying, we don't have any good doctors in San Francisco. You're all selfish. None of you are willing to go out and live on the island and deliver this baby and help her deliver the baby. And after a while, I thought, that's like an advertisement. It says, Larry... There's a job for you to do to help bend that arc of the moral universe. Wow. Go on the island and help deliver this baby. And I did. So I lived on Alcatraz. And when that baby was born, they gave that baby the name Wavoka, who was a historical figure in Indian life of great importance. That night was a really powerful night also for me. And one of the Native Americans on the island who had been a Green Beret He was intoxicated and he was celebrating the birth of Alcatraz and he cut his wrist and I sewed him back up and he kept pulling out the sutures and he was bleeding pretty bad. And the Coast Guard medically evacuated us. My medical team and myself and this Native American was bleeding and I think he might have bled to death if the Coast Guard hadn't saved his life. And when we got to the shore, he was taken to the emergency room and I was brought before all the television cameras because I was the only non-Indian who had come off the island. And they asked me, what do the Indians want? (laughs) I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I had never met a Native American until I went on the island, but I gave what answer I could muster. And uh, somebody from Warner Brothers saw that interview, I think, and I got a call, would I like to play a young doctor in a movie they were making about this kind of idea of Rock and roll bands and hippies going from San Francisco back to England, kind of the reverse of the Pilgrims visit and a sequel to Woodstock. So my wife and I did that. Remember, it was the 60s. We could make crazy on the spot decisions like that. I feel really bad for the millennials. They feel so constrained. They don't have all that freedom to make decisions like that. But I did.
0: And that's how you ended up in India.
1: Yeah, that's how I ended up in India. We arrived in India on two hippie buses. The movie was about all the rock and roll bands Pink Floyd and Jethro Tull and supposed to have been the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. And, and uh, some of them stayed with us on these buses. And we went and we lived for a while in Afghanistan,
0: Iraq, and Iran, certainly, and a lot of time in Pakistan and India and Nepal. And then in India, you met your spiritual leader who kind of set you on your next journey, correct?
1: That's right. My wife was much smarter than me, and she found her way, and I followed her to a ashram or a monastery in the Himalayas. And we met Neem Karoli Baba, and we entered into this world where a lot of seekers from all over the world had come, That included Steve Jobs and Ram Dass and Dan Goldman, a lot of names that are familiar. We all, young people from lots of different countries and almost every religion and speaking lots of different languages. We came and showed up in this very picturesque land foothill ashram and we stayed there for a couple of years and one day my teacher said to me that he could see that there was a terrible disease in India and all over the world called smallpox and that it was God's gift to humanity that this disease was going to be eradicated and he used the Sanskrit term for pulled out by the roots, which is what eradicate means. And that he wanted me to go to the World Health Organization and uh, I would get a job and be able to help eradicate smallpox. So my medical career was about to change. Up until then, I was in training to be a surgeon. I had graduated medical school. I had my license and I had finished my internship. But I'd never thought that I would wind up being an epidemiologist. And I had never seen a case of smallpox.
0: If you're just tuning in, welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Brilliant, author of the book, Sometimes Brilliant. What does smallpox look like? Most of our listeners, you know, have heard about it, certainly in books, but have never seen it.
1: In a way, I'm glad we're not showing a photo of it. It is the worst thing you could ever look at to see a child whose face is covered with boils, each one a quarter of an inch to a half an inch red and angry, looking like little volcanoes about to erupt. Many times these boils, these lesions, these pox are on the eyes and children go blind from it and they're in their mouth and in the nose, in your esophagus, vagina, urinary tract, all over and and your fingers, under your fingernails. And in a bad case of smallpox, there is not a single inch of skin Mm. in the child that is uncovered, that is healthy. And that's why the death rate is so high. It's 30%. One out of three die from it. And there are a couple of kinds of smallpox where there's a 100% death rate. It's a horrible disease. And whether you bleed to death or die of pneumonia, I mean, these are horrible things for a mother to see a child go through so much suffering and for a doctor to be unable to have anything to make it better. There's no way to ameliorate it. There's no emergency room. There's no ICU. There's no... You can't put an IV in. I mean, there's nothing you can do in a village in India in a remote place to help someone, and they're mostly children, who die from this disease.
0: When you started, I think you wrote three-quarters of all the smallpox on the planet was in India. So how did it get eradicated so quickly in some of the West, and what were the resistance that you faced in India with trying to vaccinate this population that was still the epicenter.
1: Well, another lesson for all of us is we had had a vaccine for 200 years, just like for the polio eradication program. We've had a vaccine against polio for 70 years. The vaccine is the necessary but not sufficient condition to eradicate a disease. So we had this vaccine, a very good vaccine, for 200 years. And in countries that are as rich as America or Europe, everyone got vaccinated as part of going to school. It was built into the laws of the land. And there were other countries like Burma at the time, Myanmar today, which were dictatorships or run by generals, and they could order that everybody would be vaccinated. But there was a whole set of countries that were neither as rich as America, nor as top down, brutally run as Burma was where it was a kind of laissez-faire democracy and it was poor. And India was in that category. Pakistan was in that category. Nepal was in that category. And Somalia and Ethiopia were in that category, certainly. So those were the last places on Earth that had smallpox. And Pakistan then eradicated smallpox. That left India, Bangladesh, and Nepal. And so the part that I worked for was India, Bangladesh, and Nepal. And I started off working in the little village, I started off as a secretary because even though my guru thought that I should go work for WHO, WHO didn't think so. (laughs) And when I showed up looking like a hippie who had gone native, which is the way they thought of me and they were right, I wouldn't have hired me, but I was perseverant and my guru was insistent and I would come back to WHO a dozen, 15 times. And finally, I think just to get rid of me, they created a position like a clerk, I could speak Hindi and I could type. I think those were my qualifiers, not, not that I was a doctor. And I started off as a cleric and then gradually I rose up and one day one of the Russian doctors didn't make it, couldn't get to India for some reason, was ill or something. And they, um, they needed a doctor who could go to the field. I remember them saying, let's take a chance on the kid. That was me. I was the youngest person in, in the history of WHO. So they sent me out to a village I did well there, and then they gave me a district and then a state, and at some points I was left in charge of the whole country of India. When the people who knew what they were doing, my boss, Nicole Grasset and Bill Fage and Stener Yeshik, when they were out of town, I was the the temporary head of that program. And and gradually I stayed for 10 years. And everybody else left.
0: And your guru turned out to be correct.
1: He was prescient, and how he was prescient I don't know. And in fact, even today, I ask myself, how could a a teacher who was probably in his 80s, he didn't speak English or not very much, how could he even know about smallpox, let alone that it could be eradicated, let alone that WHO and the UN would eradicate it, let alone that I could play a role in it? I mean, it goes back to that same thing. How could he know that the arc of the moral universe, and in this case, the arc of the disease world, would bend towards justice, in this case, towards freedom from this disease, and that I could play a role in it? That remains to me the question that I ask every day.
0: So what lessons for other diseases, we're trying to eradicate things like polio and other things in the rest of the world, what are your lessons that you would like to pass forth to the next generation of young ideal physicians who want to make the world a better place?
1: Well, I think they're really lucky. Their timing is good because I think in the next five years, we will hear of the eradication of polio and guinea worm. This is this terrible worm that is found mostly in West Africa and Ghana, for example, that the Carter Center has been working so hard and Jimmy Carter has been working so hard to eradicate. I think we'll see two more put on the list with smallpox of diseases that have been eradicated. But my great worry and the opportunity for doctors that are listening to this, is to ask yourself, what are the other infectious diseases that could bring humanity to our knees? And of course, I'm talking now about large epidemics like Ebola and SARS and MERS, Zika. And I'm also talking about pandemics. This year is the 100th anniversary of the swine flu pandemic of 1917, 18. All of my grandparents died in that pandemic. 1917, 1918, somewhere between 25 or 50 or 100 million people died. For a long time, we've said 50 million, but that doesn't count Africa and China because we didn't have any record keeping there. So I don't know how many really died. But if we had a bug, an H1N1 as severe as that, and it happened today, it would be worse. Our population is three times larger. The density of population in some cities is 10 times more. The travel is so much greater. In 1917, a plane didn't exist to go around the world carrying passengers. Today, planes crisscross the world, so carrying disease all the time. But more than that, just reflect with me th- these names. I mentioned some of them, Ebola, and Zika, and SARS, MERS. Let's add Lassa fever, and Marburg, and arena viruses, H1N1, H5N1, h 7 you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. There have been 30 of these pathogenic viruses that have leaped from animals to humans in the last 30 years, about one a year. And that rate is increasing as we cut down the forests and as humans live in animals' territory. In Africa, last year, human beings consumed 700 million wild animals. And a good number of those were chimpanzees and monkeys that are biologically capable of carrying the same diseases as humans. And in other countries that have gotten wealthier, China and India, Laos and Cambodia, there are places now where homes are are built like, uh, like uh, birthday cakes or wedding cakes. And on the bottom floor, you have pigs. In the middle floor, you got chickens. And the top floor, humans. And when we eat the pigs, we cut up the remainder. We call it rendering. And what do we do? We feed it to the pigs. We feed it to the chickens. We eat the chickens. We cut up the balance of it. We render them. We feed them to the pigs and to other chickens and to humans. If you designed a Petri dish to spread a pathogenic disease, a new pandemic virus, you couldn't do a better job than we have done between those two examples, eating monkeys and cutting up animals and spreading virus amongst various animals. The world is set for a bad Thing to happen, and at this moment, and then I'll quit because I'm going to talk politics for a second, at this moment, when there are so many centrifugal forces in the world, and I will call it Brexit, and I'll call it the Trump administration, and I'll say that we have a new secretary general at the UN, and WHO, because of its failures in Ebola, is going through a period of self-examination and recrimination and rebuilding, all these organizations that we usually depend upon to keep us safe, AID, the U.S. government, WHO, the British government, the European Union, the U.N. and WHO, they are AWOL or diminished. What are we going to do to either stop the increasing rate at which bad viruses jump from animals to humans or stop the deterioration in our public services that we depend upon To protect us. And so at the Skoll Global Threats Fund, what we're doing is we're starting a private initiative. It's a terrible thing. The most public of all things is public health. But in this era of diminishing public agency, we're starting a private initiative to build a pandemic response capacity worldwide. And we're depending upon very large donations from these mega wealthy young entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley. And and, uh, Jeff Skoll has given us $50 million to start that. So hopefully we will be able to build the tools that can be used for early detection and response and coordination and prevention and dissemination of of vaccines when we have them uh, to protect us. So there's the opportunity for young, well-intended doctors who want to do something on a global scale of great nobility and importance.
0: Hopefully, as citizens of the world, we can always follow your lead. The book is Sometimes Brilliant. I've been speaking with Dr. Larry Brilliant. Larry, thank you so much, And, and thank you so much for what you've really done for the planet. You know, it's an amazing thing. I was in awe of your book, and I was so honored to be able to talk to you today. John, I'm so pleased to be part of this. And your book club is so great, not just for
1: physicians, but for all of us. Thank you so much.
0: I'm Dr. John Russell. Thanks for listening. For more in this series, please tune to reachmd.com slash book club.